The situation of the army at this time far more presents an object of charity and every species of human misery than to imitate the grandeur, dread, and reverence which must necessarily attend an evading army which can reasonably expect to meet with success and honor. Nearly one half of this army is reported sick. Nearly the other half is known to be almost naked. Notwithstanding winter is now among us with all its attendant horrors. The cold forces itself into the skin in spite of every effort. Hundreds of young men's constitutions are about getting ruined for life. Some of the sick lay in the last pangs of death with one bad little blanket. The amount total of all their bedding. But it is ardently wished by every sick man in camp who is not yet bereft of every sensation to be at a place where he could be kept warm and attended to. And it is ardently wished by every naked man in camp that something could arrive wherewith he might cover his nakedness, keep his body warm and his feet dry, so that he would be able to do his duty as a soldier. Sergeant Nathan Newsom, Ohio Militia. Welcome to the foot of the rapids. The War of 1812 was bookended by stupendous winters. Along the Great Lakes, the year 1811 saw a premature frost which devastated the harvests of fledgling farms and served only as a prelude for the coldest winter anyone in the area could remember. Temperatures boring down to a ghastly plateau of negative 15 degrees Fahrenheit with occasional violent stabs to the negative 30s. In 1816, the year following the war, was known as the year without a summer, where here along the banks of the Maumee was seen frost in all 12 months of the calendar. It should be no wonder then the war years were marked by grueling, frost-bitten hardships scraped across the cutting ice of winter. It must also be remembered that the bulk of the military campaigns for this war took place on the U.S.-Canadian border, an area known for sudden entombing blizzards, low temperatures, and strong whipping winds. It was quite typical, of course, for armies to enter a state of semi-dormancy during the darker months, when roads choked with deep snow and slippery quags of mud made army movements near useless, when forage was scarce for pack animals, and food stores not readily available in every passing orchard. Men were often furloughed to see loved ones and many more fell ill with fevers, coughs, frostbite, and more. Soldiers, 
grappled not only with unpleasant weather, but great slap shots of boredom and restless, debilitating ennui. One notable exception to this general practice of winter inactivity would be the overwinter campaign of William Henry Harrison's Army of the Northwest in 1812 to 1813, a subject we shall explore in the following episodes. First, we shall tour about this vast land and gather snapshots of various scenes of snow during this hibernative state. Today, we examine the Army's activities, living conditions, and constructed shelters. Winter Quarters, welcome to the foot of the rapids. Stay warm. We heard first, in the very opening of this hour, from Sergeant Newsom of the Ohio Militia, writing in late November 1812. Newsom's detachment from Gallia County had just slogged into the vicinity of MacArthur's blockhouse in the middle part of that month, dragging their sick and wounded behind them, not far from present-day Kenton, Ohio. Most of Newsom's descriptive woes come from the want of clothing better suited to winter. Supply was seemingly always a problem in the old Northwest, where roads were troublesome in any time of the year, and few and far between stretching into the dark wilderness. The difficulties can be compounded when optimistic generals and politicians believe the campaign will be a short and victorious affair when columns step off in sunny August or September. And the weather has already turned harsh when the riders are dispatched with orders begging for winter clothes that haven't even yet been produced, often relying on the patriotic and sympathetic home front to spin socks and blankets and coats. As we have mentioned, we will target in on the chilled affairs of the Northwest in following episodes. Now, we turn to the Northeast and the peaceful quiet of fresh fallen snow. December, 1812. General Bloomfield has returned to New Jersey. General Dearborn has returned to Greenbush. Colonel Simons has gone to Washington. The 9th, 11th, 21st, and 25th regiments have all gone to Burlington and Pittsfield in Massachusetts. We are building huts which we will have finished in three or four weeks. I'm writing this at the root of a large pine tree with a few sticks set up to keep off the winds and a fire to put my feet at at night. This with my blanket defends me from the weather. We have not one tent in our regiment. I wish you could see the style in which we live. The snow is six inches deep. When I get a little more comfortably suited, which I expect I shall be when we get in our huts. You shall hear from me more. We have a great many sick men and have lost some, but they're getting better. January 16. You have seen by the newspapers the way the army is disposed of for the winter. We have moved into our huts the first of January, although they are not near finished, nor have we got any chimneys in half of them yet. There are, there are four rooms 20 feet square, allowed to each company, 
one of which the officers of each company occupies at present. There's nothing done towards the officers' huts yet. The colonel accepted, which is nearly finished. We will begin ours in a day or two. It will take some time before we will be fit to move in. The days now are so short and the weather so cold, men can do but little in a day. We have nothing new at this place. Our time is all occupied in getting wood and endeavoring to finish the huts. John Scott, 15th U.S. Infantry, camp on Saranac River near Plattsburgh. Captain Scott from the 15th U.S., a regiment we rarely hear from in the war, but it is picturesque language he uses to paint our imaginations of a tiny wall built of sticks with a fireplace at one end, all covered with a single blanket as a rudimentary shelter at the foot of a tree. Hopefully the large spreading boughs overhead to deflect the falling snow. Scott also mentions the number of officers who have gone off for winter and the breaking up of the army into smaller detachments by sending various regiments to outposts throughout the Northeast. Not far from the 15th's camp on the Saranac River, say 50 miles or so to the northwest, was the American encampment the following winter at French Mills. Here the U.S. Army dragged into a sense of repose following the aborted attempt on Montreal in late autumn 1813, and the bloody bout at Chrysler's Farm with ensuing retreat back across the St. Lawrence River. Here. Among four feet of snow, we find young Jarvis Hanks rejoicing over a pair of pants. After this, we proceeded up nine miles to French Mills. Winter had now set in, and being in 45 degrees north latitude, there was no hope of being able to prosecute the campaign further and we took up our winter quarters in this dreary spot. We pitched out tents, spread hemlock boughs for our beds, built temporary fireplaces of stones and clay mortar, and made ourselves as comfortable as the nature of the case would admit. The snow was soon four feet deep, and the cold excessive. By the middle of January, the barracks were completed, and we commenced occupying them. The first job of tailoring I ever performed was here. I had two blankets and cut and made a pair of pantaloons out of one of them, as I needed the latter article much more than the former. Oh, what a pair of breeches! Jarvis Hanks, drummer, 11th U.S. Infantry. Jarvis Hanks. A mere 14 years old at this point in the war, learning the trade of not only an army musician, but the rough work of stone and mortar. Hanks also mentions using pine boughs as bedding, something commonly done for armies moving through on campaign. In comparing this passage with the previous entry from Captain John Scott, we can hear both gentlemen fixated on winter barracks or the building of huts stronger, sturdier, 
and warmer structures better suited to the demands of soldiers and camp followers, essentially living in the field amongst the ravages of lean, dead months. And why not? As previously stated, the armies would not be mobile at this time. The quickly packable and movable tents would not be necessary if tents were available or at hand at all. Permanence would have its advantages here. Typically made of rough-hewn logs and daubed with mud or clay, straw or pine, the cabins contained tiny hearths and chimneys. The heating ability and the drawing power of these fireplaces usually coming down to the men of the messes who built them of their own devices and inventiveness and potential experience with varying degrees of success. If you have ever visited Valley Forge, the site of the Continental Army's legendary 18th century encampment, you may have witnessed the interpretive pieces that they have there in the form of reconstructed winter cabins. These are more glorious than the hovels my imagination sometimes depicts of the rude structures mentioned in other theaters of the War of 1812. The soldiers sleeping in crude bunks like on board ship. For a little more insight into the construction process of these dwellings, we cross into Canada and examine the writings of John Le Couture, whose unit of the 104th Regiment of Foot had the activity down to a science, though these were even more quick and rustic than a squat cabin. The New Brunswickers here made a professional process all the more impressive by the fact that they were on the move in this excerpted passage, constructing temporary winter quarters to deal with the excessive cold. We generally marched close along the edge of the river, wherever no rapids intervened to prevent it, and always constructed our huts on the windward side of it in the woods in order to gain a little shelter. To hut, the men were divided into squads, the best axemen immediately set to felling young pine trees to form the rafters of the hut. These being trimmed of all their lateral branches were cut to about 15 feet in height. Others trimmed the branches of pine for thatching, and it, others felled hardwoods and cut it into logs for burning. While these were at work, some were clearing away spaces for the areas of the hut by taking off their snowshoes and using them as shovels to throw back the snow until they got to the soil destined for the floor, four or five feet deep. The snow was thrown back, formed a high wall around it, which served to shelter us somewhat from the chilling wind. Within this area, the trimmed branches were placed in a conical or lengthened form and tied atop. They were then covered with pine boughs thickly laid over each, and the points of the branches being downwards made it an excellent thatch, quite impervious to the snow. With the exception of the hole at the top, which was left for a chimney, a blazing fire was then lit in the center of the hut, and all around it was strewn a thick layer of pine branches, which formed a delicious and fragrant bed. Here were not feather-bed soldiers. 
The next precaution was to close the only aperture in the hut, which was intended for a doorway, made just large enough for a man to creep through edgewise, and a blanket, which everyone in turn grumbled to give up, served as an inner door to shut out the cold, if possible. But I may well say if possible, as those who have not experienced it cannot figure to themselves the extreme frigidity of a temperature from 18 to 27 degrees below zero. It generally happened that we were as completely enveloped in smoke as an Eskimo family, but like them, we found it much more agreeable than having no smoke at all, as it warmed the hut. Moreover, I imagine that sleep without fire in such cold would have proved the sleep of death. John Le Couture. 104th Regiment of We maintain our frost-bitten hands' grip on the subject of huts and housing, winter quarters, back to the barracks at French Mills on the American side. We hear from Dr. James Mann to understand what the surgeon staff thought of the effects of winter on the frail human frame the frustrations encountered by medical men, and the great benefits of getting out of the cold. In the vicinity of French Bills, the country was a wilderness. Huts and hospitals were necessary to render the army comfortable. The erection of these was a work of great labor and required several weeks to complete. A supply of hospital stores could not be obtained nearer than Albany, a distance of 250 miles. The want of these necessities for the support of the very wretched and enfeebled soldier was most severely felt. I arrived at Plattsburgh the first week of December. The division of General Hampton, still in tents, were occupied in erecting their barracks. My most pressing remonstrances for the neglect of the hospital department were not or, or could not be regarded so long as the barracks for the troops were considered the primary object. The first consideration with officers of every grade should be to provide comfortable accommodations for their sick. The, the healthy and robust can, can better inure exposures to cold and inclement seasons in tents. Uh, under these comfortless coverings, many enfeebled by diseases who might have been preserved in warmer habitations were daily sinking to the grave. At this period, the 10th Regiment, the only one from south of Delaware at this post, suffered extremely by the prevailing mortality. The Assistant Quartermaster General had appropriated an academy, uh, the arsenal, and two private homes uh, to, to hospital purposes. The sick admitted here, except such as were quite exhausted by disease, daily improved in their health by the change from cold lodgings in tents uh, to more temperate in houses. Dr. James Mann, U.S. Army Surgeon.
We will return to John Le Couture and the 104th for our closing today and divert ourselves slightly into a story. Because elsewhere in that same chapter of his writings, which were collected to make up the book Merry Hearts Make Light Days, Le Couture really enlivens and advances our knowledge of winter army practices with fascinating details. Contrary to what we have said regarding dormancy during the winter, the 104th Regiment conquers the Canadian outback by submitting to a some 200-mile march in February 1813 through the forests of New Brunswick, of all places, from Fredericton to Quebec to reinforce the garrison there. Ultimately, the 104th would not stop until they arrived at Kingston on Lake Ontario in the spring of the year, in the opening of the campaign season. There had already fallen a greater quantity of snow than had been known during the nine preceding years, and the weather was remarkably, remarkably cold. On the 4th or the 5th of February, the thermostat had been as low as 17 degrees below zero. It had been understood that the Indians or the natives were to have been sent on to construct wigwams or huts to shelter the men in at every 15 miles distance in order to relieve them from the fatigue of hutting themselves at the close of a long day's march. But by some misunderstanding, this was not carried into effect. The first seven days' march, being through a tolerably well-settled country, we found them comparatively easy though sometimes the snow might be eight inches or a foot in depth, from the circumstances of the foundation of it being a beaten road. On the 29th of February, we hutted, and this operation was most fatiguing and disheartening after a heavy day's march, as it had snowed incessantly and so heavily that we frequently lost our narrow snowshoe track, and, if careless, were precipitated into deep snow, one man, getting a fall of this kind, caused a halt to all those in his rear for ten minutes or a quarter of an hour until he had scrambled from his cold, cold bath. The inconvenience of keeping all the rear at a halt was found so great that it was soon agreed to march on and leave the straggler to regain his place when could, which was by no means an easy matter, and made officers and men very careful not to fall if they could avoid it from the fear of having to march some distance in very, very deep snow. In order to relieve the men, each officer and man took his turn to, to break the road, as it was called, by marching as leader for ten or fifteen minutes, then stepping one pace aside and letting the whole company pass him, when he threw off his snowshoes and marched on a firm, hard path in the rear. It must be seen by this arrangement that the first pair of snowshoes had to break a path in front, the second pair improved the track of the first, and the third and every succeeding rendered it firmer and harder until the toboggans came, 
which traveled on a pretty solid path. On the 4th of March, the cold was gradually increasing, and an incessant snowstorm filling the track rapidly made the dragging of toboggans exceedingly laborious. When we got to the end of our day's march, the cold was so intense that the men could, could scarcely use their fingers to hew down the firewood or to build huts, and it was dark long before we could commence cooking. If sticking a bit of salt pork on the end of a twig and holding it in a fire could be so termed. On the morning of the 5th, the cold had greatly augmented, and the thermometer once more fell to 27 degrees below zero. And together with a gale, a northwester in our teeth, which scarcely left us power to breathe. Indeed, the intensity of the cold is indescribable. The next day's march was through a mountainous country, which was called the Grand Portage. And some parts of the pine forest through which we passed had been burned for clearing and presented a curious picture. The black and tall, grim pine trees rearing their scathed heads to the sky seemed like the ghosts, or rather the skeletons, of the noble forms they once possessed and contrasted strangely with the virgin snow on which they appeared to stand. It was altogether a most dreary and laborious day's march, as the snowdrift in some places was ten or twelve feet deep, and the constant ascent and descent made it extremely fatiguing to the toboggan men. The next morning we started with joyful countenance, under the impression that it was our last day's march through an uninhabited country, and that the morrow should enable us to march in a region where the axe had mastered the forest, and cultivation, however rude and in its infancy, announced at least that the hand of man was there. It was so seldom a reflection that we had been completely left to ourselves for many days with nothing but the snow, the sky, or the interminable silent forest to look upon us that both men and officers were heartily rejoiced when they beheld a worthy gentleman of the commissariat with a horse who had been sent from Quebec to relieve us. And we had to leave poor Rogers, who was so severely frostbitten with a woodsman at the portage. Though to us his life appeared in danger, he was quite a hideous spectacle altogether one ulcerated mass, as if scalded all over from boiling water. However, he rejoined us at Kingston in six weeks, perfectly recovered. All told, and much omitted, it took three weeks and a few days more to traverse the great gloomy forests robed in white for the hundred and fourth to emerge out the other side and find rest in Quebec. Merry hearts make light days. The War of 1812 Journal of John Le Couture 
was compiled and edited by Donald Graves. And that's all we have for today. Next week, we focus solely on the winter efforts of the Army of the Northwest as General Winchester slowly pushes troops from Fort Wayne to the foot of the rapids, and troops from Virginia encounter the snow and ice of Ohio's Black Swamp. Our thanks to the Daughters of the War of 1812 for their financial support, the Old Northwest Military History Association, our thanks to True, my partner in this crime, We'll see you again. Huzzah.